the Southland Christian Ministries podcast. Here we will post sermons that have been spoken at the camp from pastors, evangelists, and other gifted speakers. We desire to provide this resource to help you saturate yourself with the Word of God on a regular basis. We pray that you would allow the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to change your life for God's own glory. Great to see you and honored to be with you. So thanks for coming for a weekend at Southland. I didn't see this. I'm sure the question's been asked already, but how many of you, this is your first time to Southland? Raise your hand. First time. How many of you, this is your second time to Southland? Second time. Quite a crew. Okay. Third time. You've been here three times. How many of you have been here like so many times you don't know how many times? Okay. Lots of you. Any of you go to camp here when you're a kid? Hey, all right. Wow. Any of you still a kid? Okay. How many of you have kids? Okay. Well, listen, I am glad to be here with you. Do you guys remember, um, how many of you ever saw Sesame Street when you were a kid? How many of you saw it when you were a kid? Okay. Do you remember they used to sing that little song like, um, you know, one of these things just doesn't belong here. Can you tell me which one? Do you remember that? That's how I feel without my wife here right now. Like I'm sitting at a table. Where is, is Mike in here right now? There's Mike. Mike was my table buddy, but it felt really weird, Mike. I'm just going to say it right now, okay? So we're sitting with all these couples, and then it's Mike and I, you know. So Mike, thanks for being willing to sit in. So we were this odd couple tonight. But um, uh, Julie and I had a fight before the event, so... Actually, Julie and I have been um, on the, like the travel, um, the, the whirlwind of, you know, life events. So we have been just going 100 miles an hour. So I called my curbster a couple of weeks ago and I said, hey, I don't think Julie's going to make it. Our marriage weekend at Campus Church is next weekend. And so Julie is, is already, you know, she's been working on it. She's working on all those things. So I send, you know, our regrets on her behalf. I would love for you to have opportunity to rub shoulders with, um, with Julie, but I'm sorry she's not here. And it's great to hear that because did you hear the little baby cry? That's one of our church members at Campus Church. So John and Kayla are here. And I have to tell you, I'm so pleased to have a couple of our church members um, you know, from Campus Church here at this weekend retreat. So John and Kayla, great to have you here. And um, nice to hear the sounds of new church members, um, you know, here with our, our retreat. Now, some of you are saying, listen, I'm glad my kids are not here right now. In fact, where's the couple? I saw you guys are back there. Yep, you're raising your hand. Those two, like, do you have kids in the home? And where are they? Did you lock, lock them in the basement or what would you do with them? Hanging out with friends. So they're standing in the line. They're kissing in the food line. You know what I mean? And I'm standing there with Mike, okay? So it's a little awkward, Mike and I, while they're smooching in the food line. And, and she has this, you know, she has like this cute, you know, I, I only have eyes for my hubby t-shirt on. You guys are like the perfect marriage weekend retreat couple, you know. Give them a round of applause. Yes, you guys. Perfect. Uh, let's see, let's, um, 
Let's, this is my first time here at Southland, so obviously first time to spend time with a lot of you and, and you with me, so let me give a, just tell you a little bit about um, who you're going to listen to for a little bit this weekend. So my name's Jeff, Jeff Redlin. Um, I grew up in Michigan. Any Michiganders out there? Hey, all right, go blue. So I uh, grew up in Michigan. Then I went to college at Pensacola Christian College. And then um, I traveled for him for a couple of years. And then after that, I became the youth pastor at Campus Church. Campus Church is the church on the campus of Pensacola Christian College. So I did that for the next 15 years. I was a youth pastor. And then the Lord called Julie and I into um, senior pastor ministry. And we knew he was directing in that way. So, so we took a step of faith and, and we didn't know where we were going to go, but the Lord did. And he directed us to Colorado. So that's where we spent the next 15 years and pastored a church, Front Range Baptist Church. Um, some of you know Dean Miller. He's preached here maybe to some of your teens. Dean Miller now is the pastor of that church. In fact, he's my parents' pastor right now. So that's a little awkward, but, um, you know, so he's my parents' pastor. And I used to be my parents' pastor. Now, now he has the privilege of pastoring my folks. And, and so then the Lord called us back to Campus Church from a place that we loved, because um, we loved being in Colorado. We loved the church and, and where the Lord had us. But we have oftentimes preached that people should follow the Lord's leading. And even when those are difficult choices. And then, you know, if you don't follow the Lord's leading, a place that you love becomes something other than what you actually loved. So we took the step of faith and we've been back in Pensacola um, at Campus Church for the last five years. So that's our, you know everything about us now. That's our whole life history. Um, Campus Church, some people wonder, tell me what's Campus Church like? Because like I, I heard you have a lot of college students there. Um, it's a local church. So it's just, it's just church. In fact, um, Julie and her family, her dad was a businessman in the area. So they just went to Campus Church. They, they were born and raised in Pensacola, Florida. Um, but when they were looking for a church, Campus Church became the one the Lord directed them to. And of course, that through the series of, of life, that's how Julie and I met. And, and so that's, that's our church. We have, we have hundreds of folks from our, our, the surrounding area. And then, of course, we have a lot of college students and then faculty and staff from, from the college that all attend Campus Church. So it's quite a unique place. Um, how many of you have ever been um, to Pensacola Christian College? How many of you have ever been there before? Lots of you. How many of you have ever been to a service at Campus Church? Oh, great. Wow, lots of you. Well, listen, you're, you're all invited, but if you're ever swinging through and you're on vacation or something, we'd, we'd be honored to see you. Well, we have lots to do over the course of the next few days. And, and quite honestly, I have been wrestling with like, man, there's so much that we could spend time doing. So we just trust the Lord then, don't we? Have you ever, have you ever um, come away from a service and you said something like, how did they know that that is exactly what I needed? Have you been in those situ situations? That's because God is an, an omniscient God. And isn't it wonderful how he, he meets our need with his provision? Um, I know I've asked you to raise your hands a lot, but let's do it just a little bit more, okay? So how many of you have been married for um, uh, five years or less? Five or less, raise your hand. Wow, that's heavily weighted. This is the young married crowd over here, okay? 
So five years or less, um, let's see, six to 10, six to 10 years, raise your hand. That is not a well-represented crowd right there. Okay, we have some, but not a huge demographic. Thank you, you six to teners for being here. Great to have you. Let's see here. How about um, 11 to 15? 11 to 15. Whoa, wow. That's a, that is a better represented group. Okay. And then where are we? 16 to 20. 16 to 20. All right. You guys are getting some years on right now. All right. So 21 to 25. Okay. Our lovey doveys over here in that bracket. Wonderful. Hey, listen, there's, there's, listen, if you're newly married, 21 to 25, they're still smooching in the food line. Amen? Okay, let's see here. 26 to 30. 26 to 30. That's the group I'm in. I'm, at, I'm 30 right now, 30 years. And okay, then let's see here. How about, now we're starting to really get up there. Let's do 31 to 35. Any in that group? Just one. Okay, well, bless your souls. Okay, so 31 to 35. How about this one? 36 to 40. Any in that group? Nobody. All right, you guys keep coming to this so that group can be represented in the years to come, okay? And then how about, um, let's just go from 41 to 50. 41 to 50. Wow, that's, some, some, that's a great example. 41 to 50. How about um, 51 plus? Anybody 50 plus? Wow. Okay, two, two couples. How many years have you been married? 52. 52 years. And how many years have you guys been married? 55. Hey, let's give them both a round of applause. Our 50 plus. Wow. Marriage is, um, this is for free, okay? So this is not part of the message, but... We make a big deal about marriage, and appropriately so. In fact, there's a weekend dedicated to, to addressing, strengthening the, the, the gift of marriage. But I think that God, th this is speculative, but I think it has basis, okay? So I think that in God's wisdom, do you know how God gives us pictures all the time? He continually gives us pictures. In the Old Testament, picture, picture, picture. It's the, it's the great picture book that points us to the gospel, right? And we know that marriage also is a picture because he references, he says, I speak, you know, this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking concerning Christ and, and the church, his bride. And marriage is, this is what it is, okay? We, when I do a perform a marriage, um, I oftentimes say, so long as you both shall live. And then they say, I do. They're committing to something so long as they both shall live. But, but actually, marriage, I think God gave it to us to be this constant, continual, visual reminder of something that doesn't end at death. It never ends. At the end of Ephesians chapter 3, we're told that God's means, the, the means by which Jesus will receive glory, world without end, is through the means of the church, the bride of Christ. And I think God gave us marriage as one of those continual, daily Everywhere you look, pictures of that which is going to be forever ours to enjoy. And we're the, we're the bride, and the bridegroom is Jesus. Amen. Isn't it interesting how Satan, he takes aim at everything that is good and seeks to distort that which is good. For example, this is, I, please forgive the, the little, 
I don't mean for this to be a hobby horse, but isn't it interesting? It's, it's at least I'm telling that the symbol that God gave that he would never destroy mankind again for mankind's wickedness actually becomes a symbol now for wickedness. Isn't that interesting? And then when you think about marriage and what's happened now with marriage, marriage is, uh, the enemy is trying to redefine marriage. That, that means by which Jesus is going to receive glory throughout all of it, the ages. So Satan continues to try to, to mess with that which God's given for good and then turn it into something obviously that is not. So there's a lot to be learned, of course, about marriage. And it's, a, it's how many of you have ever been confounded by the expression? How many of you husbands have ever been confounded by the expression, dwell with your wives according to knowledge? Okay. And it's like, whoa, that's going to take a miracle. Okay, so how do I fully understand her? Well, it takes a lifetime. We continue to learn. We keep growing and understanding. Um, I found some things that I just think, you know, oftentimes kids have insights that we don't. Have you ever just heard children say things? It's like, wow, out of the mouths of babes, you know. So these are some, these are some thoughts from children on love and marriage. So what is the proper age to get married? Um, any of you married before, in your, in your teens? Any of you married in your teens? Wow, okay, so lot more than I would have thought. Okay, so let's see here, what do they say? When's a proper age to get married? Um, Bert, who's five, said, once I'm done with kindergarten, I'm gonna find me a wife. <laughs> um, Martin is 10, and he was asked, what do most people do on a date? He said, on the first date, they just tell each other lies. And that usually, that usually gets them interested enough to go on a second date. <laughs> Will, who is seven, said, uh, answer the question, is it better to be single or married? This is a seven-year-old. He said, it gives me a headache to think about that stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble. Okay? <laughs> what is falling in love like? John is age nine. He said, it's like an avalanche where you have to run for your life. <laughs> What role does handsomeness and uh, beauty play in love? Brian is seven, and this is what he said. It isn't always just how you look. Look at me. I'm handsome like anything, and I haven't got anybody to marry me yet. <laughs> that kid's in for a rough ride right there. When is it okay to kiss someone? This is interesting. Pam, who is seven, said, when they're rich. <laughs> And Roger, who is six years old, said, if it's your mother, you can kiss her anytime. But if it's a new person, you have to ask permission. <laughs> and then how does love endure? Aaron, who's eight years old, said, don't forget your wife's name. That will mess up love. <laughs> and then how does love endure? Dave, who is eight years old, has some good advice. He says, be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. <laughs> Come here, baby, let's kiss. All right. Okay, tonight we're going to um, not take so much of the kids' advice, but we are going to take some advice from, from Scripture. And um, here's our goal tonight. Because there's such an assault on marriage, and because we oftentimes... Um, well, let me, let me ask it this way. How many of you husbands have ever taken a butter knife out of your wife's silverware drawer and used it for something other than butter? 
Okay, how many of you have ever done that? How many of you have ever bent the tip of the knife before? Oh yeah, still. So I'm sorry, I don't mean to cause tension here tonight. And, and then how many of you have taken it out to their garage to like you know, your vice, you know, and you're trying to bend it back? You've done that very thing. I have too. It's why my wife's not here. Okay. Okay, so, so the point we're trying to make is sometimes we, we expect something to do that which it was never intended to do, right? So we, we try to get the butter knife to do something other than, than use it for butter or whatever. And then we oftentimes do damage to the thing that was not intended to serve that purpose. And I think many times, even believers, we try to get marriage to do something that God really he didn't intend it to do that. Or we're looking to marriage to provide something that that really is not the intent that God designed marriage to provide. So if we're looking for marriage to do something that it's really not designed to do, the frustration can mount and be really problematic. And then we start to buy into a belief system about marriage that is faulty. So we're going to try to address this evening, three lies that really destroy marriage. And when we start to subtly buy into this thinking about marriage, it starts to erode that which God has intended marriage to do. So let's begin at a familiar passage, Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Let's, um, let's begin there, Matthew 19. And, and once you get it, you can kind of just look up here and and um, we'll get started in just a moment. Matthew chapter 19. Have you heard the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer before? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, a believer, a, a theologian. Um, he was imprisoned by the Nazis back in the 40s. And while in prison, he wrote a sermon for his niece, who was about to be married, and um, and of course her fiance, but a friend of Bonhoeffer's as well. And he was never able to preach the sermon, but the words of the sermon were retained. And let me read before we pray and before we read our scripture, let me read one of the lines from Bonhoeffer's sermon that he wrote for his niece and his friend. He said, today you are young and very much in love and you think that your love will sustain your marriage. And then he said this, he says, it won't. Now that's a startling statement to a young couple who's about to be married. This is what he was going to preach at their wedding. Today you are young and very much in love and you think that your love will sustain your marriage. It won't. But your marriage can sustain your love. Now, when we start to think in terms of how did God intend for us to view marriage, and when we see it as God intended it, it really can provide something that you can't find otherwise. Let's read our passage, then I'll pray. Matthew chapter 19, let's begin in verse number four. Matthew 19, verse number four. And he answered and said unto them, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. 
Father, help us now over the next few moments to use our time with wisdom. May your truth engage both our minds and our hearts. And may as we conclude, may we have a refreshed understanding, if not a, a revealing understanding of why you have given us marriage and some, some lies that our world is trying to, to force us to buy into. So help us now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I, I, was, at the, I was at a public school when I was a kid um, back in the, the late 60s, early 70s. And new math was the thing that they were talking a lot about back then, new math. I don't know if that is even a term still today, but they were trying to teach math in some strange ways. And if you're, if you're carefully reading the passage we just looked at, there is some strange math that occurs in that passage of scripture. Normally we say one plus one equals two, um, but there is an arrangement that God has given that is one of those, this is a mystery. And that is, he says it, and they twain, they too shall be one. Okay, so this does take a, a man and a woman, and I know I'm speaking to the choir, so to speak, but I, I don't want to be presumptuous on this. Today, our world tells us that two men can equal one in marriage, but that doesn't work. That would be one plus one equals two. Okay, or you could say, well, two, woman, two women could be, be married and that one plus one would equal one. But according to God, who's, who's the same yesterday and today and forever, this is truth for all people, all places and all times. One woman and one woman equals two women, okay? But you can have, in God's economy, you can actually have one man and one woman that equal one flesh, in marriage. This is God's wonderful, unique, I mean, a special design for marriage. Now, all of us like some measure of freedom. We like it, okay? Have you ever been a little bothered? You get defensive if people ask you questions and you kind of wonder, like, um, why are you asking me? Especially your spouse. Like, where have you been for the last, um, you know, 30 minutes? You ever get a little sensitive about questions like that? And we say things like, well, seriously, I mean, you're, I, I was coming home from work and I, stopped, I had to stop and get gas. And we're explaining it like, who's the Gestapo asking me where I've been for 30 minutes? Okay, do you know why we are a little bothered by that? Because we, we like this measure of independence, this little measure of freedom. We like, I mean, as Americans, we like freedom of speech, freedom of choice. We, we talk about freedom of religion or freedom from religion. We are built on this sense of independence. But when it comes to marriage, have you ever thought about the fact that you can't really have a marriage that God intended when we're focused on our own independence? In other words, if I start to look at marriage as some means by which my independence has to be protected, how can I really vest myself in two who have, by, by what happened through the covenant of marriage, two that now have actually become one? There's something that's fragmented when my pursuit of my own independence, even in a Christian marriage, is something that I continually pursue, I'm fragmenting that which God has intended for me to actually set aside and be one in marriage. Do you remember the passage of scripture in John chapter eight, verse 36, Jesus said, if therefore the son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. And we say, yeah, free indeed. 
But there's no absolute freedom from everything. What he's saying here is this is freedom from a bad master. This is now freedom to choose a good master. And you know, in marriage, when we're looking for freedom from all restraint, we've really loosed ourselves from the very thing that gives marriage its purpose. And that is two who have selflessly given themselves to something bigger than either of the individuals. Okay, so the attitude regarding freedom certainly impacted our view of marriage. And now there are a lot of people that are trying to not only redefine, you know, who they are, but certainly trying to redefine marriage. So what are some of the lies then that we start to buy into regarding marriage and how it's supposed to work for people just like you and me? Okay, here's the first lie that I think people are, are being fed today in our culture, in our society. Lie number one. Before I say this, I know this is not the thing we articulate. I know that there are, there are, I don't presume there are people here who maybe ever even said these words, but I don't doubt that there are some people who would say if there was absolute transparency that, well, the idea has at one point or another crossed my mind. So you say, well, what's the, what's the lie? You've heard people say this. You may have heard some, you know, famous couple that were married, and then they began to articulate in so many words, well, I think I married the wrong person. I think I married the wrong person. Actually, if we're trying to break this down, it's not really the point. The focus is not, are they the right one for me, but rather, how can I be the right one for them? Do you see how that is completely opposite from what we should be asking? Really, in marriage, what I should be asking is, how can I be the right spouse for Julie as opposed to she is not the right person for me? See, the moment that we stood before a pastor and said, I do, and he said, it's done, that became the right person, okay? So now I have to start thinking, well, she's, I just don't know if she's the right person. I might have married the wrong person. No, 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 no. I have to learn how do I become the right person? Okay, I did some casual research, okay? So I did some casual research on what is it that a man or a woman is looking for in a spouse. And so when you start, this is not supposed to be a, a humorous thing. It's just like this is what... What people say, this, this is what a man's looking for in a woman, woman looking for in a man. A couple of things. First of all, he wants to be deeply attracted to you. In other words, these are things a man's looking for, ideal wife. He wants you to be attractive for him. He wants her to be a good listener to him. Okay. He wants you to share his goals and dreams. This is again about him. He wants you to be compatible. Compatible to what? Well, to him, he wants you to meet his needs physically. Well, when you start to just break this down, all of these things continually rotate around the center, which is him. And then you start thinking about, okay, what's a woman looking for in a man? She wants you to have strong communication skills for her, okay? She wants you to understand who she is. She wants you to make her laugh. She wants you to be willing to admit when you are wrong, which by the way, husbands is a lot, okay? And she wants you to pay attention to the details of her life. 
Okay, you have these two lists. This is the man's list. This is the woman's list. And what do both of those lists rotate around? All right. Do any of you have, um, do any of you have two-year-olds in the home right now? Two-year-olds in the home. Okay, John and Kayla, you do. You guys do, two-year-old? Um, you know, we talk about, now, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but a lot of you have had two-year-olds in the home. And we sometimes refer to them as the terrible twos, all right? Terrible twos. Why do we do that? If you had to come up with, why do we call this the terrible twos? Why? Um, I think it's probably because of a major um, seismic shift in the rotation of the universe. Okay. Okay, when a baby's born, to that baby, the universe rotates around them right? I mean, every need that they have is supplied by whoever. They don't even care necessarily who. They just want their needs met. Everything rotates around them. Okay, so what starts to happen around the age of two? Well, the word no becomes much more prominent, and it is a jolt to their universal system, okay? A world that rotated around them, I mean, when they needed to be changed, when they wanted food, if they want to be picked up, if they want someone. I mean, and what do we do to make a, a baby laugh? Do you know the weird faces you make to make a child laugh? <laughs> do you do that for anybody else? Do you go up to, vo, 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 vo. I mean, you don't do that for anybody else, okay? But you do it for a baby. The world rotates around a child. And then their universe gets readjusted, and we call it the terrible twos. They come to these shocking realizations, and they need to come to a shocking realization that the world doesn't rotate around them. But strangely, in marriage, oftentimes, at least in our culture today, we live in a world that continually says that the spouse, your spouse, is supposed to rotate around you. That in a sense, you are the center of your marriage universe. Romans chapter 12, verse number 10 is probably my favorite um, marriage counseling, not pre-marriage counseling, but marriage counseling verse. One of my favorites. Let me read it for us. Romans chapter 12, verse number 10 says, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. And then it uses a really wonderful little phrase. Anybody know the rest of the phrase? Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Anybody know the rest of that passage of scripture? Yeah, wonderful. In honor, preferring one another. Okay, if, if I approach marriage thinking, oh man, I don't even know if I married the right person, I'm asking or making the wrong conclusion. My conclusion is supposed to be, again, how can I be the right person? And if I am treating my spouse, okay, be kindly affection, be nice to one another. Okay, with brotherly love, that's phileo. We're not even talking agape here. He's saying, all right, have this phileo um, installment and investment in your marriage. And then he says, here's how you're gonna do that. In honor, preferring one another. Now, sometimes we get worried. Have you ever had, we, we, again, we probably don't say these things out loud, but have you ever had the idea that if I do this for my spouse and I keep doing this for my spouse, what if I'm the only person who does it? Like, what if they don't reciprocate? What if I become like the proverbial doormat of the marriage? 
or if I'm always the one who is preferring them above myself. Have you ever, have you ever had that little subtle thought in your mind? Again, these aren't things that we, we usually articulate, but oftentimes we do mull, we think a little bit about. Well, the, the honest truth is your marriage will work that way. And I'm not trying to be unkind about it. Your marriage will work that way. You say, well, what if only one person does that? Amen. Amen. You know, Jesus, the great initiator, the great lover of your soul, is the one who does something without reciprocation. In other words, he's the great initiator of love. Now, marriage, I think, becomes a little heaven on earth when both prefer the other above themselves. It can be a little difficult to decide what restaurant to go to on Sunday after church. Like, where do you want to? Wherever you want. No, no, no. Where, so it can be a little problematic there. But it can be wonderful when a spouse says, listen, I, I want to place my, my better half, so to speak. I want to place my husband, my wife in a place that is exclusively, specially theirs. Now, sadly, today, you know, some people think, well, I should get like a uh, a marriage mulligan, you know, I should get a do-over because I learned something from this one. So let me, let me swing again at this and, and, and I'm going to get it right this time. Um, even the world with studies on marriage gets the, the understanding that you don't just, it doesn't help to keep trying again. This is a person, this, this is a, a, the ethics pro- professor at Duke University. Okay, his name's Stanley Hauerwas. Listen to the point that he made. The assumption, now this is, a, a, this is not a saved person, okay? But listen to what he says. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find that right person. The moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. This is a Duke University ethics professor. We always marry the wrong person. Now listen to what he says. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we at first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means that we are not the same person after we've entered into it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Now, this is a lost person. So he doesn't get the whole biblical dynamic of marriage, but I will say he does stumble onto something. He does understand that there is something about life that changes us. Um, Sunday night in church, we had a male quartet sing. And, um, and I'm listening to them sing and I'm watching the guy on the end uh, whose name is Micah, and I'm watching Micah sing. And Micah's a young man. They have uh, probably a nine, ten-year-old son, he and his wife, Robin. And um, their marriage changed about six months ago, drastically changed. Um, she went into the hospital, uh, into the doctor, having some problems. Well, they're a young couple, I mean, beautiful couple, and um, she, has, she has very serious cancer diagnosis that they, their life just changed. And it changed radically. They're counting their days right now, not their years. Everything you think about now, you process through a different lens. But it is why in marriage we say, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, 
in sickness and in health till death do us part. These are the kinds of commitments that we make because we become different people. Loss or tragedy or blessing and bounty, all of these things impact the persons that we are. Now, some of you have been married for, we have two couples here that have been married for 50 plus years, okay? I don't presume to know your story, your life, your history, so, so I won't presume to know that, but I do know that I've been married now for 30 years and I could not have written a script for my life. Now, I'm serious about this, and I'd, 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 it, maybe it's easier for me to say, but I would love to be able to say this with Julie here. I did not know when she and I stood and made holy vows before Almighty God and before the witnesses that were gathered, I did not know all that I was getting. And I will also say she's not the same person that she was when she married me when she was 21 years old. Oh, I know she's, she's the same person, but she is so much more than the person that I married when she was 21 years old. And, and I'm not the same person. I'm, I'm a, I know I'm the same person, but do, do you want to be different tomorrow than you are today? Okay, so, so how can we presume to know the, all the twists and turns of life? You can't know that. That's why, okay, the marriage is something that I am committed to because we two just became one. So we both are dedicating ourselves to something bigger than either of us individually. And that's a commitment that we make before God that says this is a covenant and Lord, there's something more important than me in this arrangement. Now, if we don't go any further than that, than me, then we can rapidly come to the conclusion, I might have married the wrong person because they're not satisfying me in the same way. They're, they're more difficult than I anticipated. Well, I didn't sign up for this. How many of you had any of those stark realizations after you got married? Like, who does that, you know? <laughs> Okay, I, I have, when I do premarital counseling, I ask them to write out 25 expectations that they have of marriage. And they're always like these cute little, I expect that we'll go for long walks on the beach and in the gentle rain and, and you know, it, and we're gonna have a kitten and, and life is gonna, you know, they say all of these, you know, they're all sweet and they're all nice. But did you know you don't know you have an expectation really until the expectation is missed? Once the expectation is missed, it's like, what in the, okay, so, so um, I don't know, like, like cooking, okay? Did you ever expect someone to cook something like your, your spouse to cook something like your mom cooked it? Let me tell you, okay, I can say this because Julie's not here, okay? <laughs> How many of you grew up in the North where they make, um, they make dressing at Thanksgiving and not cornbread? I mean, we make stuffing not cornbread dressing. How many of you are stuffing people? Like bread, it's kind of gummy and good. And, okay, how many of you like cornbread um, dressing? Oh, that is the nastiest stuff. You guys, I do not like cornbread, whatever it is. I like cornbread, but keep it away from Thanksgiving and, and don't, don't try to imitate something that God intended to be otherwise. Okay. Um, any of you, uh, any of you, um, any of you, like, it was shocking when your spouse, you got married and your spouse was squeezing the toothpaste from the middle? Oh, I mean, I get a look like, she's like, oh. 
that's disgusting, okay? Well, it's like, hey, what are you doing? Squeezing, well, that's, it doesn't matter. It's all gonna come out. No, no, we don't do this. Let me come here. Here's what we, okay. Do you understand that we have these expectations about? All right, when we have expectations and our expectations are not met, the Bible has some interesting things even about to say, even about this. From whom does our hope come? Our hope comes from the Lord. Okay. He's the one who always satisfies. If we're looking for our spouse, you have to always provide satisfaction for me. That's what I expect. Well, our expectations at some point, some way, some stage, they're going to be frustrated or disappointed. My expectation, my hope comes from the Lord. You know, the prevailing attitude of marriage today is that we have to find our soulmate before we can ever truly be happy. One author wrote this. Some people in our culture want too much out of a marriage partner. They do not see marriage as two flawed people coming together to create a space of stability, love, consolation, a haven in a heartless world. A marriage based not on self-denial, but on self-fulfillment will require a low or no-cost maintenance partner. In other words, they don't, they don't need anything. Um, who meets your needs while making almost no claims on you. Simply put, today people are asking far too much in the marriage partner. And by that, what he's saying, we're, we're not asking enough out of ourselves. One, of one of the most frustrating aspects of marriage that all of us will face will happen when we start demanding a certain level from our spouse and we don't start with demanding those things of ourselves. So what's one, of the, what's one of the subtle lies that we start to believe about marriage? Like, well, maybe, maybe I'm, I, I don't know. I, I know we're married. We're going to stay married. But if I had it to do over again. And again, I know we're, we're usually not saying these things. But sometimes these are the lies that in our mind begin to captivate and direct our action. Okay, what's the next one? The next one is marriage shouldn't be this hard. Marriage shouldn't be this hard. I, I, th I think that, I say this a lot to young couples in premarital um, pre counseling. I say marriage is going to be harder than you thought and better than you could imagine. Okay. Harder than you thought, but better than you could imagine. Okay, there's a lot of really easily understood great things about marriage. Um, when, when you do, um, you know, meet with young couples, and, and I get to meet often with young couples. I have a, uh, and in fact, I got to do John and Kayla's premarital counseling. So, so I get to meet with a lot of young couples, and they do have like, what are you looking forward to? And when you say, what are you looking forward to about being married? Well... They say things like, you know, it's going to be so nice to not have to say goodbye at the end of the day. That's a good thing, right? And they, they say a lot of really sweet things like that. But, um, they, they, I'm not being silly, and we're married couples, so they, they, they're thinking about, well, we're going to be together physically, which is a blessing of marriage. I married a, a couple years ago. Um, he was our youth pastor. I was, this is in Colorado, and so he served as my youth pastor, and she was um, the kindergarten teacher. 
And man, everybody like, you know, they're, they're the perfect match. And lo and behold, they started dating. And, you know, they were, they were so careful in dating. And, and I did their counsel. And, and they said this. They said, our first kiss is going to be when we say I do. Like, wonderful. So I did their wedding. And I'm, I'm standing up there. And, and I'm getting ready to pronounce them man and wife. Okay. Now, how many of you have ever performed a wedding before? How many of you have ever performed a wedding? Okay, so several. There's always a little awkwardness. I'm going to fill you in on something, okay? So you're standing there, and you're about to say, I now pronounce that you are man and wife. What therefore, and I always use my pastor, what therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. You may kiss the bride. You know, so I'm being very pastoral. You may kiss the bride. Okay, so... You never stand that close to kissing people. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're standing right there. What are you supposed to do while they're kissing? Are you supposed to like... <laughs> look around? Are you supposed to rate the kiss? You know, 8.3, you know? <laughs> what are you supposed to do? So you're standing there, they, you may kiss the bride, and, and they kiss, and you're like, oh, that's nice. Okay, so Quentin and, and Theo Ann, they're standing there. And I say, Quentin, you may now kiss your bride. And I know this is their first kiss. Quentin, you may kiss your bride. And Quentin, you know, he goes up to her and (laughs) he takes her in his arm. And he has this really sweet kiss. He kisses her, you know, and and it was all nice. And I'm like, oh. And then everybody couldn't hear this, but I'm standing right there. Okay. So I hear this. He kissed her and then he comes back. And it was just, it was very sweet. He just said, whispered, wow. And here's what I thought. I thought, first of many, first of many. And that's marriage. And and it's wonderful. And and they began their life together. They they haven't had, they they never had any, any, Children that were that that she conceived, she never conceived. But they have four children now that they've adopted, and I just heard from them. In fact, I was speaking at a camp this summer, and their oldest was working at the camp, so it was really very sweet. They had, you know, like wonderful expectations, and you know, a physical aspect. It's a wonderful ex- expectation of marriage, but is that the summation of marriage? Don't raise your hand. There would be few in here, I think, if, if, again, we were just talking very transparently, there would be few in here that would say, you know, marriage was a lot easier than I anticipated. Because usually there are some things that are just like, wow, that was, that was not easy. I, I know it's harder at times than you may have anticipated, but far better than you could ever imagine. And, you know, when we start to buy into the lie that it's not supposed to be this hard... Well, then something's broken with our spouse because clearly the problem's not with us. It's not supposed to be this hard. Why are you making this so difficult? Okay. Now, you may have actually said those words before in some loving exchange with your spouse. Why are you making this so difficult? It's not supposed to be this hard. And, you know, sometimes we extrapolate that thinking to marriage itself. Okay, what does marriage actually do when we're talking about love in marriage? Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ. What what does that look like? What does love do? 
well, it's not supposed to be this hard. Wait, 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 just a second. Okay, love beareth. How many things? Love beareth. It hopeth. It endureth. All things? Like, come on, it's not supposed to be this hard. Wait, 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 just a second. The love that we're supposed to be demonstrating is the kind of love that actually can, can exceed, go beyond all things. If you wanted to be a surgeon, you know, I mean, I mean that, this is your goal in life. You, you wouldn't come to a conclusion, at least you, I wouldn't want you as my surgeon, if you said something like, you know, I shouldn't take this much effort. I'm just going to do the surgery. You're going to say like, no, man, if I'm going to be a surgeon, I'm going to have to do this and this and this and this. Man, I got to go through a lot of steps to finally come to the place where I can perform successfully an intricate surgery. And, you know, I think it, it, it would behoove us to say, what is necessary for me to do, to learn, to, to master, so that I can become successful at possibly the most important, this side of eternity, relationship that you will ever have? What do I have to do to make marriage work? Let's jump to the last one, and then, and then we will wrap this up. Okay, I think I married the wrong person. That's a really a focus on me, and they're not doing enough for me, rather than let's focus on what do I need to be for that person. Um, I don't, um, you know, I, I don't think it should be this hard. Listen, the, all kinds of things are challenging, and marriage can be at times difficult because we have two selfish people coming together to form one body. And then thirdly, what are sometimes the, the challenges that um, we start to buy into the lies that were fed regarding marriage. Number three, I just don't know that I feel like I'm in love. I just don't know that I feel like I'm in love. So if we don't pause and give this thought some careful consideration, we would come to some really poor conclusions. When we don't feel like we're in love, let's remember two things. First of all, my commitment is greater of greater importance than my feelings. Okay, so my commitment is of greater importance than my feelings. Um, the Bible says this, God takes covenants, by the way, very seriously. It's why we call marriage a covenant relationship. We're entering into a covenant with God. He takes them very seriously. Listen to what he says in Jeremiah 33, um, verses 20 and 21. Thus saith the Lord, if ye can break my covenant of the day, my covenant of the night, and that there should, be, there should not be day and night in their season, then may also my covenant be broken with David, my servant. God's saying, hey, listen, listen, if you, can, if you can break the covenant of the day, the covenant of the night, the covenant of these seasons, if you can do that, then I'll break my covenant with my servant, David. God's saying, I take this very seriously. God takes our covenant relationship with our spouse very seriously. So my commitment is of greater importance than my feelings. We're, we're made up as reflectors of God in, in many ways. One of the ways we're made up as a reflector of him is in the triune aspect of, of how we are. We're body, soul, and spirit, right? So that reflects the Trinity. We're also another reflection of him with mind, will, and emotions. Mind, will, and emotions. Okay. Um, remember we talked about the two-year-old. How's a two-year-old driven? Pure emotion, okay? Pure emotion. 
I mean, have you ever just watched them have a meltdown in Walmart, okay? I mean, they can just be, because they didn't get, you know, whatever, their animal crackers, and whoa, it is a major deal, pure emotion. Okay, maturity is moving from an emotionally driven life to a mind-driven. Let this mind be in you. Jesus said that, or the Bible speaking of Jesus said, who for the joy that was set before him, future joy, endured the cross, despising the shame, set down at the right hand of the Father. Okay, so let this mind be in you. Mind. Um, you guys make decisions all the time because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Okay, how many of you, um, how, <laughs> how many of you know where your snooze alarm is on your clock? How many of you know how to turn on the snooze alarm? Okay, so how many of you, um, how many of you just say, no, I just sleep right through it? Okay, <laughs> so your snooze alarm, <laughs> John, okay. So, so that snooze alarm, have you ever had a scenario like this before? Have you ever gone to bed and you knew you had to get up at, let's say, six o'clock? I have to get up at six o'clock. You set your alarm the night before for six o'clock. Six o'clock comes around and the alarm's going off, you know. What happens at six o'clock? When you knew the night before, I have to get up at six, how many of you have ever had, this is probably back in your college days, so a long time ago, but how many of you ever hit the snooze like more than three times, okay? It's, con confession is good for the soul, I know. And so you hit it three times. Have you ever had this before? So you knew, I gotta get up at six. You set it for six o'clock. Beep, 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 beep. Okay, what's speaking to you right then? Your mind or your emotions? Your emotions are saying, come on, man. Pull the covers up, dude, okay. And your mind is saying, it's not a good idea. You better get out of bed. And your, your, your emotions are saying, shut up, you know? <laughs> okay, so, so we have this, this conversation. Okay, so, so now we're trying, to, we're trying to, you know, feel our way into something good. Well, what happens after finally, like you, 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 you hit your snooze three times, and then do you know that jarring feeling? Like it goes off the third time or the fourth time. Beep, 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 and you're like, oh! Oh, and then you're up and, and you're running around and people say, hello, shut up. You know, you're, you're mad at the world because, because you were listening to your emotions, right? Okay. So how many of you have ever had like a kid that didn't want to do their homework? I don't want to do my homework. You're going to do your homework. There's only so much daylight. I know. And there's only so much time in a day. You're going to do your homework. Okay. You're so mean. I know it. Do your homework. Okay. So, so they do their homework and then they finish their homework and then they get to go do something that they want to do. And they have a lot of fun doing it as opposed to, oh, I just want to play one more game, one more game. Oh, you know, you've got, I know I just got to do one. Okay. And then life is miserable because they're, they're playing one more game. They're trying to feel their way into a right way of acting, which never happens. But you know, you can actually act your way, actions, I'm not talking about acting as an, as an, an actor, but you can put actions into place. You can act your way into a right way of feeling. That, that is the, the gift of marriage. Well, you know, this, this is not easy to do. I don't feel like I'm in love. Okay, we'll start acting like it. Start acting like it. Okay, so what do I have to do? What are the actions of love? 
What do I do now that actually become this demonstration of the same? Remember, my commitment is of greater importance than my feelings. You may not always feel like it. That's really not the point. Actions of love often lead to feelings of love. Okay, in, in his book titled Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this, and I thought it was insightful. People get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find that they are not, they think this proves that they've made a mistake and are entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. You know, the selfless acts of love that were demonstrated by Christ are those that actually led to feelings but are not driven by them. Let me, let me read 2 Corinthians 5.15. And that he died for all, that they which live should henceforth, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. That they should henceforth not live unto themselves, well, I don't have feelings. I, my feelings are like, I'm bankrupt right now. Okay, then you better start making an investment in action if you want to reap a reward in feeling. If you want deeper feelings of love, invest heavily in the deeper actions of the same. Amen. Right acting leads to right feeling. Feeling alone seldom leads to right acting. Feelings are kind of like, quite honestly, they're like the free radical of the soul. Feelings can be all over the place. How many of you have ever, you know, I, I don't know, guys, I don't see a lot of you doing this, but I've seen ladies cry and laugh at the same time. Have you ever done that before? It looks painful to me. I don't know, but I've <laughs> seen you actually do the same. It's like my emotions, or I don't even know what I'm feeling. <laughs> it's just so strange. A strange dynamic. What, what he's saying to us in 2 Corinthians 5.15, he's saying, hey, listen, this is not about you. So give yourself to the right acting, which brings about the right feeling. So when confronted, who comes first in marriage? Like, well, they're, they're just not. I just don't know that I feel the same about them. Well, you can do three of, one of three things. You can selfishly insist on your own way. Secondly, you can serve the other with dutiful coldness. Well, I'm going to do it. No, I'll take care of it. Well, fine, you, you're not going to, I'll do it. No, no, I'll do it. I mean, we can do that, right? Or you can offer to serve the other with joy. And really, there, there's only one good option in those scenarios. You know, something um, is bound to happen when we talk about you know, what's going to happen with us. Remember, we live in a culture where we, we approach marriage differently. And marriage used to be like arranged marriages, you know. Hey, this is the person you're going to marry. Something begins to happen when two people are married. We begin to find out how selfish this wonderful person is. Like we just married them. Wow, man, they're more selfish than I thought they were. They begin to find out that you are also a selfish person. And then number three, we oftentimes conclude that their selfishness is more problematic than my selfishness. 
When we conclude that our spouse, you know, doesn't learn to deal with their selfishness and like they're going to have to take care of things, we're in for a long journey. But if we'll approach ourselves and our actions, we're going to find that the journey actually takes a really pleasant turn. John 13, 34, let's end with this. John 13, 34 says, a new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. There are three really bad lies that if we're not careful, we start to buy into. I think I married the wrong person. It shouldn't be this hard. And I don't feel like I am in love. Those all begin at the wrong place. And quite honestly, they end at the wrong place. But when we pattern our love after the one who is the great lover of our soul, we have chosen a really great pattern. Father, thank you that you have demonstrated love. And then thank you, Holy Spirit, that by your indwelling presence, you enable a special love. I pray that through the course of, of the next really few hours, we will continually look at your pattern for love. Make our love for our spouses more like the love of our bridegroom for us. Thank you for the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. Lord, greater love hath no man than this. May that be typical of our love where we lay down ourselves for our spouse. Thank you, Father, for really the, the, the great interaction and, and attention, Lord, the, the focus on your word tonight. Continue to focus our thoughts, we pray. Strengthen us according to your word. In this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that the truths learned from the Word of God will challenge your heart to a greater degree of love for God and a desire to make Him known through your life. Join us next time for our next sermon. Thank you and God bless.